I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Andrew Palmer, the business affairs editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the program, can't see it, can't hear it, but it could bring your company down. What risks are companies facing to their intangible assets? And that's ultimately what companies are more worried about, right? The sort of black swan events or the types of things that they can't control suddenly bringing their reputation down. And as Uber hits a roadblock in New York, how can cities tackle traffic and pollution? An alternative plan might be to do congestion pricing. Basically, the idea would be to charge drivers more money when they want to use roads during peak hours. First, though, to Venezuela, where President Nicolas Maduro has resorted to desperate measures to try to tackle hyperinflation. He's chopped five zeros off the currency, issued new notes called the Sovereign Bolivar, and anchored them to the Petro, a state-run cryptocurrency. The International Monetary Fund has predicted that inflation in Venezuela could reach 1 million percent this year, and economists have warned that the new measures could exacerbate an economic crisis which is already making life incredibly hard for millions of Venezuelans, many of whom are going hungry or fleeing the country. Stephen Gibbs joins us on the line from Caracas. Good morning. Uh, perhaps you can start by telling us a little bit about the situation now. The banks were closed for one day, but they're back and, and reopened. How has the introduction of this new, new currency gone, as far as you can tell? Well, in terms of the sort of logistics of it, it seems to have worked. Uh, every bank account, every million bolivars of the old type that were in a bank account were turned into 10. And I can tell you from my experience that worked. My bank account went offline for six hours. And when it came back online, there was a, a balance minus the five zeros. I also actually managed to do some shopping yesterday, even though it was a bank holiday. A few shops were open and they were taking uh, this new money. And of course, all the prices were also reduced um, removing the five zeros from all the prices. It's freed up a huge problem that had existed here, which was that the numbers were becoming completely unmanageable. It was millions of bolivars to do anything. And one issue of that, because this is hyperinflation in the digital age, was things like we were constantly hitting our limits on both debit and credit cards, which meant that to make basic purchases, you'd have to sort of run your card through four or five times. That caused huge queues in things like supermarkets. Well, yesterday that was all gone. The limit is not being hit, which makes everything much more practical. But let's see for how long. And is the old currency still legal tender? Can you still use it? Yes, that's an additional confusion. The Maduro government has repeatedly had a problem in, in printing enough cash, most of which actually it buys from suppliers abroad. So it's it's failing to sort of completely replace the old currency with a new one. So the two run in parallel. And that's incredibly confusing because both of the notes from the old type and the new type 
look extremely similar. In fact, the new one doesn't even mention that it's a sovereign Bolivar as opposed to a strong Bolivar, the name of the, the old one. Now, Mr. Maduro dangles this as a, as a solution to Venezuela's ills, and the, the million Bolivar question is whether it is going to enable the economy to regain stability. What's your sense at this very early stage about whether this helps Venezuela? I don't think the knocking the five zeros really makes any difference. It just, it just makes the sum simpler in the weeks ahead. But will it stop hyperinflation? There seems absolutely no reason why it would do that. And neither will most of the announcements that President Maduro made in parallel to this uh, conversion of the money, including that he's raising the minimum salary by a factor of almost 35 times, a a clearly inflationary uh, measure, one that is necessary in a way because people are currently earning absolutely pitiful sums. So there is a problem there. But it doesn't really solve, of course, the fundamental problem, which is this is a country that has been printing money at an unbelievable really rate for the last five years or so. And that has accelerated in the last few months. Now, on the other side of the balance sheet, the Maduro government is doing some things or at least promising to do some things which ought to help the finances. So cutting fuel subsidies, for, for example, is that a more gradual process? Yes, that was the sort of headline grabber that this uh, country that has ludicrously cheap petrol, which is effectively free, was going to change that. Definitely a gradual process. I actually went to uh, fill up my car yesterday. I paid with the old money and the old price, which is a, a fraction of a penny to, f- to fill up an entire car. The petrol attendant said as far he, as he was aware, it wasn't going to be until the 20th of September that they would begin charging even in the new currency, uh, which would put prices up by adding 10 zeros effectively to the price. So what we're hearing from within the government is that there's a degree of dispute about how they roll this out. And one test of how much confidence people will have in the new currency is is going to be whether a, a, a black market at an unofficial exchange rate starts to show up a gap with the official exchange rate. Can you see that already happening? It does appear to be beginning to happen. And the way you, you, you know that's happening is the exchange rate in Colombia, the border, uh, the main sort of border between Venezuela and the region. And that's where the main real exchanges of cash between Bolivars and, in that case, the Colombian peso happen. Now, reports from the border suggest that the black market rate before uh, this exchange, which was 6 million Bolivars, to the dollar is already creeping up towards 10. Now, we won't know for sure how that's how that's playing out for the next few days, because Monday here in Venezuela was a bank holiday. Today, there's a general strike. So sort of normal business, if anyone can describe anything that happens in Venezuela as normal business, has not yet resumed. The government, when it announced these economic measures, did announce a 96% devaluation in the Bolivar against the dollar, quite extraordinary, and an ex- sort of acceptance that the black market rate, which the government here has long said is really an invention, is a real rate. Uh, but let's see if, if the government can hold in any way against a very, very strong black market and a very, very strong demand for dollars. Finally, people are voting with their feet and have been for a while and leaving 
Venezuela, and there are signs that some neighbouring countries are, are stopping the flow of Venezuelans into their into their countries. Is your expectation that we will, you know, over time, given what you've laid out, see more and more people leaving? Yes, I mean, unfortunately, there's very little reason for people to stay, and the more that leave, the more sort of connections people have to leave. Against that, there is a, a sort of concerted effort. It really does seem uh, by the government in this region to make it a lot more difficult uh, for Venezuelans just to travel. One of the ways that Venezuelans have been travelling, a lot of them travel without passports. Why do they do that? That's because it's almost impossible amongst many of the other shortages in this country to get a new passport uh, without paying a pretty substantial bribe. So there are restrictions on people leaving, but no, the incentive for people to abandon this country, however difficult and painful that is, I'm afraid still exists and appears that that pressure is going to increase. Well, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk to you again shortly just to uh, find out how the situation is unfolding. Stephen Gibbs, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist. Next up, over the past decades, what makes up the value of a company has shifted from tangible things like ships and buildings to more invisible and intangible things like intellectual property or data or reputations. And keeping those things safe from attack or external events is becoming more of a priority. To learn more, I'm joined by Sasha Nauter, our finance correspondent. Hi, Sasha. Hi. Okay, let's try and make this as concrete as possible for people. So when we think about an intangible risk, what does that mean in practice? So to understand what intangible risks are, let's quickly go back to intangible assets. So whereas tangible assets can be seen and touched and are quite easy to value or measure, intangible assets are much harder to get your your hands around and simply put are are non-physical assets, as you said in the introduction. So intangible risks are risks either to such assets, so for example the loss of of data, customer data, or risks caused by such assets either to other intangibles such as a company's reputation or to just normal physical assets. So a hack, for example, that's probably the thing that that people sort of most associate with this area, some kind of cybersecurity breach. But if we widen the lens a little bit, when you talk about a risk to a reputation, what kind of incidents are you thinking about there? Reputation risk has always existed, right? I mean, companies have always had their their scandals or things that have gone wrong that have harmed the reputation. But the, the real game changer right now is social media and the internet. And what you're looking at is things like um, a celebrity, perhaps a brand ambassador, or perhaps somebody who's got nothing to do with your brand, um, doing or saying something about your product that will suddenly cause a huge uh, change in consumer behavior. So we know from polls that over half of consumers say they've changed their mind about buying a product from a company following some form of negative uh, publicity. So a recent example of this actually was Kylie Jenner, who's got over 20 million followers on Snapchat, but is in no way uh, employed by the company, seemingly innocently tweeted that she was a bit fed up with the design change. And this on the same day led to a plummet of 6% in the company's share. So it shows that, you know, whilst those kind of things might seem fairly funny and small, actually they have real impact on, on companies value. So you're describing a a world in which there are lots of these non-physical risks, lots of ways in which companies can get hurt um, by them materialising. Normally, insurance steps in at this point and and protects firms against, against such risks. How has the industry made progress in protecting against those kind of risks? 
The industry will recognize that intangible risks exist and usually will steer the conversation straight to cyber risk because that's sort of their comfort zone. That's the area that they understand relatively better than other parts of intangible risks. It's also the area where they're probably selling most products right now and seeing most growth. But once you start looking at other types of intangibles, some of which are connected to cyber, some of which are really on their own, as we've just been discussing, there's a few quirky niche specific exceptions. But on the whole, the industry hasn't really been getting to grips with these risks, never mind the types of products um, that they require. So if, you know, if I can build on reputation for a second, you know, quite a few insurers have offered and still do offer basic sort of reputational harm insurance. But what that would cover, for example, is if the brand ambassador that you have hired misbehaves and does something that can be directly linked to a fall in in profits, that would be covered. But something external, like uh, Miss Jenner, who we just discussed, wouldn't be. So the types of, and that's ultimately what companies are more worried about, right? The sort of black swan events or the types of things that they can't control suddenly bringing their reputation um, down. So on the whole, the industry is playing it really quite safe and, and sitting back a bit on, on quite a lot of these risks, partly for understandable reasons, but it does mean that you have this huge gap of uncovered uh, risk that's left on the table. And the, the conventional way to kind of price these risks is for, for an insurer is to look at how often bad things have happened in the past, work out from that how often, how often bad things are likely to happen in the future and, and, and price a policy accordingly. You can do that to a certain extent with these kind of risks, can you, can you, but presumably it's harder yeah, no, exactly. You've hit the nail on the head. I mean, ultimately, insurance is a, is a backward-looking um, industry, as in, and I don't, I don't mean that as a, having a go at the industry, but they model their their products on historical data. That's their big treasure trove. And ultimately, this is asking them to look forward to do predictive analysis, etc. So that it's harder, everybody will agree on. However, Whilst there are lots of new risks, many of them coming from sort of the digital revolution, there are also lots of possibilities and opportunities that come with huge amounts of data and much more clever data analytics and computing tools that are now available. The more forward-looking insurers are, again, looking at more intelligent ways or more creative ways to model these um, risks, if not perfectly, at least trying to get a better sense. Can we just end by, by thinking a little bit about, about the sort of consumers, people like you and me? So, you know, we, we can see how this is of interest to insurers and potentially to, to, to companies. Why does, why does this conversation matter to us, to ordinary people? So it's relevant to people like you and me, particularly if you think of our data. So we give our data or we lend our data to lots of companies out there. And at the moment, data breaches are going up year by year at quite a staggering rate. Insurance can do two things. It can firstly help companies understand where their vulnerabilities are. For example, showing them, look, if you do this, you can prevent data from being leaked or stolen in the first place and with that protect people like you and me from having our data out on the streets. But secondly, the type of cover that we were talking about earlier can help them crisis manage so that if something does happen, they can quickly intervene and sort of mitigate the risk and stop the leaking and with that um, control the damage, which again comes back to the individual consumer getting greater protection. 
Sasha, thank you for walking us through that, that difficult topic so, so clearly. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Finally, New York became the first American city to curb the growth of ride-hailing services like Uber and Lyft. Lawmakers there approved a year-long ban on issuing new licences. London's mayor is planning something similar. But what is the best way for cities to solve the problems of congestion and pollution? Wade Joe, who's one of our data journalists and who is writing on this issue uh, for this week's uh, edition, joins me in the studio. Wade, take us through your views on whether these uh, caps in New York and potentially in London represent a good idea. Hi, Andrew. I think the short answer is that I don't think they're a good idea. One problem with sort of a hard cap is that they're probably too blunt in instruments. The data from New York suggests that around half of the increase in for-hire cars like Uber have come in the outer boroughs where you simply can't find a taxi. If you do a citywide hard cap on the number of Ubers, this will probably disproportionately affect people living in the suburbs. What do we know about the effects of Uber and Lyft on, on congestion? Presumably there's data out there. There's some data out there. There, there haven't been any sort of really concrete academic studies, but it seems in both New York and London, traffic has slowed down considerably shortly after the proliferation of Uber. Okay, so there is some problem to address here. Your contention is that just a cap on licenses is is the wrong way to go about it. So what would make sense? Well, an alternative plan might be to do congestion pricing. Basically, the idea would be to charge drivers more money when they want to use roads during peak hours. This idea has already been implemented in Singapore and Stockholm. London has its own version, but it's, it's not entirely effective. What's the problem with London's? So the problem of London's congestion charge is that currently the city charges you a flat fee to enter uh, the central bit of the city. Ideally, what you want of a congestion charge is to vary the charge by time of day. The problem with London isn't necessarily that there are just too many cars. It's that there are too many cars during specific hours. Okay, so the, the ideal scheme would be a variable pricing scheme. Exactly. Okay, and how does that get implemented? Does that require every car to get tracked, or is this just a question of specifying particular hours of the day? That's certainly one way to do it. In Singapore, they have digital trackers on every car. I, I don't think you need to go that far in New York or London. Basically, governments already collect data on taxi and Uber rides, for instance. So it might be as simple as simply adding a surcharge to every taxi ride that varied by time of day. Do we have any sense what that would do to the cost of individual rides? Is this, is this swallowable from a consumer point of view? I mean, presumably. One problem with cars is that they cause congestion. Economists call this a negative externality. Basically, you're imposing social costs onto other people that you're not necessarily paying for yourself. So uh, really the fair thing would be to charge consumers more. And talking of negative externalities, as economists like to do, uh, pollution is another one. So would this charge also sort of wrap into it some of the global warming pollution um, issues that people worry about when it comes to transport? So Transport for London, which governs all public transport in London, is proposing for next year a, quote, ultra-low emissions zone. The idea there would be to basically tax cars, older cars that emit more greenhouse gases for entering central London. I, I think that's basically a sens sensible scheme. And what about the politics of this? So, you know, the congestion charge has been in in London for 15 years or so. Mm. New York has nothing like it. So making it more expensive and or introducing it for the first time presumably represents a political challenge. Yeah, yeah. Congestion charges are certainly not popular anywhere, really. Uh, I think there's certainly been plans before, but they've always 
run into political trouble. I think the last serious attempt to implement a congestion charge in New York was from Mike Bloomberg. The proposal just simply went nowhere. Wait, let's end with a, a sort of personal reflection. Um, I think you've taken cabs in all three of the cities we've, we've talked about, so New York, London, and, and Singapore. As a consumer, as a rider, which place suited you best? Well, I, I think in practice in, in London and New York, I, I mostly stuck with trains just because roads really more resembled parking lots than anything else. Okay, we won't call you a taxi then. Wade, thank you. Thank you. If you have any thoughts on this story or anything we've discussed today, please email us at radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Would you like to subscribe to The Economist? Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Andrew Palmer. In London, this is The Economist. 